Bent coppers. The idea of police investigating police still has the power to shock. But back in the 60s, it was unimaginable. An anti-corruption police unit would never even have been set up if it wasn't for a remarkable, groundbreaking investigation carried out by the Times. On Saturday, November the 29th, 1969, breaking all sorts of conventions, the Times ran a story under the headline, Bribes, Threats, Planted Gelignite. It detailed an investigation into corrupt police officers in the Metropolitan Police. This is an unhappy story written with legal advice and without pleasure. It's an account of corruption, greed, cynicism and injustice and is likely to destroy the careers of its principal characters, three seasoned detectives, two of them from Scotland Yard. That's Julian Mounter, one of the two journalists behind the investigation, reading from their report. It also exhibits an unusual courage in an inarticulate young man with an unadmirable criminal record for dishonesty, who agreed to play a lonely game of decoy among men of superior intelligence, experience and resource, whom he'd come to regard as the opposition, the police. It will lose him friends and win him enemies. The report caused a storm. The allegations were shocking, but so were the cast of characters. The police were held in such high regard at the time that the article started with almost an apology. A story written without pleasure. So how did the Times uncover the original scandal of corrupt police officers? And what happened when they published their explosive evidence? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, corrupt cops and a Times expose, the true story behind Line of Duty. Across the country, millions of people gathered around their TV screens last night to watch the series finale of Line of Duty. If you were one of them, or even if you weren't, you might want to know how police anti-corruption units first came about. How does one go about nicking bent coppers? How do you police the police? Back in 1969, it was a task that fell to two reporters at the Times, Gary Lloyd and Julian Mounter. My colleague, Gary Lloyd, had been doing a story and through that had met a couple of criminals, one of whom was approached by Michael Perry, who was a young, petty criminal, we would call him, who said he was being blackmailed by the police. Gary interviewed him and thought that there was something in it. Gary and Julian worked together on the news desk at the Times and both went on to have long and successful careers. When we caught up with Julian, who's now retired, Gary, unfortunately, wasn't well enough to join us. But Julian did a valiant job of filling us in. Gary was told by this criminal that a detective inspector had placed a piece of gelignite in his hand and said, ah, now I've got your fingerprints on this. You 
will have to cooperate with us, which basically meant you have to pay us money. That was the allegation. Gelignite is a form of explosive that was often used by criminals back then to crack open safes. Gary and I interviewed him at length because Gary wanted to know whether I agreed that that it seemed genuine. And my impression of Perry was that he was 100% genuine as a person, but whether he was telling truth or whether he had another motive was very hard to tell. Was it quite hard to trust him given that he was a petty criminal and he was making these wild accusations about the police? Yes, it was very hard. But my instinct was that there was enough about him that seemed honest to pursue it. You know, if people are lying, you tend to see other clues about how they behave. And if you've worked as a journalist for a long time, as you will know, you get an instinct for it. You do. But the problem for Julian and Gary back then was how they could prove it. At the time, the police were seen as unimpeachable, trusted, respected, and held in the highest regard by the public. There was enormous trust in the police. Scotland Yard had a reputation of being the gold standard investigative force anywhere in the world. And British people were incredibly proud of the police. I was too. I had policemen in my family from Cornwall. I was very proud of them. And my interactions with police throughout the career that I'd already had was one of respect. And I think this was common. So this was an outstanding allegation. But Perry, although he was a petty criminal, was able to point to a litany of interactions with a number of police officers to back up his allegations. We said, well, is this a one-off? Was this ever happened before? And he said, no, 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 this happens all the time. It's common. What is common about it, we asked? Well, you know, I pay two or three policemen. I've paid others in the past. They help, they get you off cases so that you can keep paying them. So we asked names. They said Inspector Robson's uh, deputy, Sergeant Harris, and another uh, guy called Sergeant Simons, who was based in Peckham, and gave us other names as well. We decided from what his allegations were to investigate uh, Robson, Harris and Simons. But the question was, how do you do it? Now, if you're watching Line of Duty, it's all very well organised. You know, you've got hundreds of policemen (laughs) available. And those sort of units today are available to try and catch bent coppers. Back in the day, there was none of that. Investigations carried out by other newspapers back then had often relied on subterfuge. Journalists would go undercover to record evidence of criminals behaving badly and breaking the law. But who could you pose as if you were trying to catch a corrupt policeman? But there was obviously no way we could do that to catch these three. God, if you were pretending to be a criminal, you might just get yourself arrested. (laughs) Exactly. There is one way of doing this is to use tapes. The Times was a very serious paper. I'm sure they'll say they are today. But in those days, the difference between a serious paper and a pop paper was harder to define. It was a paper of record. When I started on the Times in 1966, there were advertisements on the front page from the days, the famous days of covering the war in the Crimea and things like this. 
everybody relied entirely on what the Times said. If it was in the Times, it was true. Mm. So to suggest that we would use tapes was quite something. We had to go and see the news editor first. And the news editor quite properly looked aghast. <laughs> and he said he'd had to go and see the editor, who was William Rees-Mogg. And so we involved William. And William is a very serious fellow. William Rees-Mogg was the long-running and highly respected editor of The Times. He was also, of course, the father of the politician, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He used to sit in a rocking chair in his office and quietly rock to and fro as he contemplated issues. William's view was this was an incredibly important issue. And he said, well, yes, uh, we could go ahead, but uh, we had to keep them fully informed. Given the sensitivity of the investigation, only a select few at the paper were informed about the progress it made. There was the news editor, the editor of the paper, William Rees-Mogg, and crucially, the Times lawyer. Julian and Gary began by asking Michael Perry to call Robson and Harris, the officers at Scotland Yard, who Perry said were blackmailing him. When he did, they recorded the conversation. And the conversation went in a way that didn't entirely prove what he was saying, but made it very clear that it could be right. Uh, well, I, I want to see him about say about the um, we saw something happened to me yeah. and the the jelly like. Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether I could um, yeah, get out of it. Well, I should think so, mate. I think it sort of went along the lines of it's Perry. Yes, uh, we need to meet. Yes, I will meet in a car park. You know, it's about the thing that you did the other day, which would have been the jelly night. Oh, yes, oh. we'll meet in a, a certain car park at a certain time. Just to get this clear, why do you think Perry, who had clearly had an arrangement with various policemen before, why do you think he came forward and found journalists now? Had, had something changed? Only the Jellic Knights. You see, for a petty criminal, mm. you might get away with stealing, I don't know, a, a coat from a shop in that you would be put on probation or something like that. Uh, you might possibly go to jail for a month or two. I don't think he had a jail conviction at that time. And he was uh, a young man that had gone off the rails, but he wasn't a criminal as such. It became clear as we got to really know him and his background. So to put Jellignite on his hands actually put him in line to go away for five or six years. Mm. So it was a terrifying prospect. And had the tactics changed in that up until then, it sounds like he'd been paying policemen to get off petty crime, for them to turn a blind eye, and suddenly here they were fitting him up, sort of setting up a blackmail plot. Do you know, it's worse than that. As the tapes revealed later, what some of these policemen were doing were actually suggesting crimes and ensuring that policemen were off the streets and that it would be a good idea if you knocked off that uh, supermarket next week. We'll make sure that nobody's around. They were running a crime ring. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's unbelievable. All of it was pretty unbelievable at the time for a force that was thought to be extremely good. The three officers, 
Robson, Harris and Simons had the appearance of regular, honest policemen, the sort everyone knew and trusted. Robson was tall and grey-haired and quite an impressive-looking figure. Harris was short and portly and looked like a quite tough policeman. Simons was one of your lads type policemen, again, uh, a bit rotund and very jokey. Julian and Gary began to record all of Perry's meetings with the corrupt officers. As most meetings would take place in a car, they had to work out how to put a recording device in the boot of Perry's vehicle. But then in subsequent meetings, it became clear that that wouldn't work very well because occasionally they'd say, come to our car. So we then used a thing called a mini Nagra, which was a professional small um, tape recorder in those days, strapped it on Perry, mm. and then we could record the meetings he had in their cars. How did you hide it on him? Very difficult. He must have been very scared of being found out too. We were, and we realised that if we found out before we had real evidence, Gary and I were in the shooting line. Yeah. I can remember, I think it was uh, Simon's uh, saying one day, we listened to the tapes once we had a radio mic on him as they were being recorded sometimes. And I can remember once Simon saying, yeah, Perry, this isn't being recorded, is it? And he was joking. And I think Gary and I almost passed out. It was uh, quite, quite a surprise. On one occasion, Perry met the corrupt officers in a shopping centre. We then had somebody walking around with a, a tape recorder in a shopping bag. Gary and I think uh, a woman sound recordist with the tape in uh, her bag had to follow Robson <laughs> Perry up and down escalators recording this conversation. How did that go? <laughs> Very difficult to do. I think Gary came back perspiring, saying, my God, that was a tough one. I don't want to have to do that again. But the investigation didn't just rely on audio recordings. The paper employed a photographer to take pictures of the meetings between Perry and the three policemen, Robson, Harris and Simons. And from those meetings with these two and then with Simons, the sensational stuff started to emerge. The most important, perhaps, of which came from a conversation between Simons, Detective Sergeant Simons, and Perry. Perry was to pay him, and during the conversation, he told Perry... Always let me know straight away if you want to because I know people everywhere. Because I'm a little firm in a firm that doesn't matter where, anywhere in London. I can get on the phone to someone that I know I can trust, that talks the same as me. And, and if he's not the person that can do it, well, he will know someone who can. If you get into any trouble, you mustn't worry, because I'm in a firm in a firm. No matter where in London, I can speak to somebody who thinks and talks like me. Basically, he was saying that there were bent coppers all over London who he could call upon. And as, of course, it transpired, that's exactly oh. what was happening at the time. So you say to somebody, you can do this crime, I'll get people off the the street, somebody picks you up, they take you off to Shepherd's Bush Police Station. You pick up the phone and you ring uh, the bent detective, call the guy at Shepherd's Bush and say, hi, buddy, drop this one, is one of ours. Simons was basically admitting to a protection racket. 
So if Perry was arrested anywhere in London, Simons would know who to speak to to get him off. For a price, of course. So the corruption became clear. Now, it wasn't everybody, and it's terribly important. Some of these line of duty and documentary series and everything else are giving the impression that there are bent policemen everywhere. I think in those days, it was a relatively uh, common thing in Scotland Yard. I wouldn't think it was more than 10% of the police. Some investigators since have said it was more. I think there was ignorance. I think some people were trapped into being bent by other bent coppers. And I think some people just shut their eyes to it, which in its way was a corrupt thing to do as well. But it was pretty, pretty dangerous stuff that was going on. As the evidence mounted, Julian and Gary were edging closer and closer to publishing their investigation. But it wasn't easy. They'd have to persuade the readers of the Times, who placed great faith in the police, that their allegations were genuine. We were shocked initially, surprised later. And then as the revelations got deeper and deeper and more came out, I suppose just very concerned to get it right. And now that is probably (laughs) the most difficult thing because we realised that we had to prove this ourselves. There was no way that once Scotland Yard were involved themselves, that this would easily be exposed. Mm. As somebody, I think a minister or somebody said, this was like catching the Archbishop of Canterbury in bed with a prostitute. (laughs) It was going to be causing absolute furora and everybody would close ranks. Knowing that they couldn't rely on an official investigation ever getting to the truth, Julian and Gary went to extraordinary lengths to prove money was changing hands during those meetings between Perry and the police. For every meeting, we would search Perry. And I mean a very thorough search down to his underpants. Having searched him, we would leave him with the money that he was going to pay to the police. And we would take the numbers of each of the notes that he was going to pay over. We would then make sure that his car was absolutely clear of any other notes. And then after the interview, after he'd uh, been with the police, rather, we would search the car and search him again immediately. We would then take our tapes off the tape recorders and sign them. We would seal them. We would take them back to the Times and seal them in a sealed cabinet. We would make statements ourselves and record these with secretaries set up to do the work. And we would interview Perry each time, and we would interview anybody else involved. So that step by step, we had a a perfect record. In due course, and before we handed all the tapes over, we handed copies of all this to put in a bank in Fleet Street so that we were doubly protected. And while you were gathering all of this evidence... At what point did you think, we've got it? We've finally got enough to be able to go public with this? I think it took us three months. And at the end of three months, I think we had it solidly on tape. You could hear all the things that we are finally alleged. People setting up Perry to uh, commit crime, taking money from Perry, telling Perry that they could 
always back him if he uh, kept going with them in this corrupt way. And we'd also heard stories of other people involved, other bent policemen. We heard stories, uh, extraordinary thing one day, talking to Perry, we said, it's amazing that they could be so nasty and yet not violent. And he said, what do you mean? And we said, well, they've never knocked you about. Of course they did. And we said, what do you mean? They cost me, oh yeah, I've been knocked around, not by these three, but I was knocked around by another one, you know, came in and, you know, gave me a good bashing. Oh, is that common? Oh yeah, yeah, if they want to get something, yeah, if they want to, uh, well, why don't you complain about that? How are you going to prove it? They're all doing that. Uh, well, I don't quite believe that. No, 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 any of the ones that I've dealt with, you know, you've got to be ready for it. I mean, no, Robson and Harris haven't beat me up, but yeah, no, no, it's some people you expect it from. Coming up, going public. What happened when the Times published the investigation? To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Last night, The Times handed Scotland Yard copies and transcripts of 11 tape recordings of conversations between detective officers and a young man with a criminal record, which were taken between October 26 and November 14 of this year. The detective officers did not know that the tape recordings were being made. That was how the Times reported it. After months of secretly recording conversations between Michael Perry, a young petty criminal, and the three serving police officers who were blackmailing him, the Times were finally ready to publish the investigation. The night before they went to press, Julian handed files with copies of the evidence over to the police. The news editor and I took uh, a big box of, of files and tapes and everything to Scotland Yard, a rainy night in November. I remember it's cold, windy, and we turned up at 10 o'clock at night with these tapes just as the first edition was running and asked to see somebody serious. And the guy on the door sort of wanted to send us away, I think. But eventually we convinced him that it was rather serious. So we got to see a, a chief superintendent and left him with this, telling him that the following morning uh, there was going to be a story which was going to cause an enormous fuss. That's so interesting. What made you sort of take it to the police rather than just wait for them to read it in the paper? Both we and William Rees-Mogg realised that if we just printed it in the paper, there would be no way of ensuring that it would be dealt with properly. I think uh, William was incredibly brave to do this story. And I think he felt very strongly that we had to hand it over and... As we published, we couldn't hand it over a day before and we couldn't publish without handing it over. The police's reaction was swift. Within hours, the baddies had been phoned and prepped by the people at Scotland Yard. This gave them time to cover their tracks, destroy evidence, uh, look through their notebooks, change them, do all the things that you might be able to do to defend yourself by altering evidence. The police instincts were for self-preservation, and it wasn't just their own notebooks and evidence that they were trying to destroy. Over the next 
two years, Gary and I were followed. Strange things happened to our phones. People took photographs of us. We were actually clearly being investigated ourselves. We had formal interviews, of course, as witnesses, which went on for days in separate rooms at the Times, initially by senior officers from outside the force. But it became clear that another agenda was going on. It made us feel uncomfortable. I think it seriously worried Gary. I think he felt at times, you know, this is just unbearable. It's just not good enough. I can remember we'd get clicks on the telephones if we were talking. We would get strange telephone calls which we would answer nobody there. Perhaps the most serious incident was that one day at the Times, a again young criminal turned up. He came from Birmingham, if I remember correctly. And he had been told that he was going to get a long sentence. The police were going to invent something against him if he didn't plant drugs in Gary's home. And luckily, I suppose he felt for Perry and anything else he might have read about, he went to the Times rather than do it. But again, that could have been uh, a a really nasty outcome. And that must have been quite disconcerting for you to realize just how far they were willing to go. By then, we were convinced that uh, we had to watch everything. looked over our shoulders. We felt a bit threatened. Mother of God. By then, the Times reports weren't just causing a stir at Scotland Yard. They were being quoted in the corridors of power. Within days of this being revealed in the Times, Jim Callaghan, who was the Home Secretary, was under pressure in the House and behind the scenes to do something. He appointed an inspector of constabulary from outside Scotland Yard, a guy called Frank Williamson, to investigate the allegations. Frank Williamson was the most upright person you were ever likely to meet, a very serious policeman. He actually reminded me of my grandfather. He was uh, dour, absolutely rigidly straight and completely disliked any any small slip by any policeman in the work he did. So he's very much like the hero in, I hope he remains a hero in line of duty. There's a cynical journalist talking. (laughs) (laughs) Frank Willisham started investigating and at every turn, he was meeting blank walls and he set up a team and the team were running into blank walls. He managed to persuade some people within the Home Office, some politicians, that something had to be done. So you had two forces going on here. You had Frank Williamson trying to unearth the truth about how widespread the firm in the firm was. And you had a set of corrupt detectives trying to stop him achieving anything. The man in charge of the Times investigation at Scotland Yard was Chief Superintendent Bill Moody. Chief Superintendent Bill Moody was a short, rotund sort of guy. On the surface, a very friendly guy. He was in charge of a big division that dealt with, amongst other areas, Soho. He was moved from that and put in charge of the Times inquiry. 
And we had a lot to do with him. Every now and again, he would ring us up and we'd have to be interviewed again. But Gary and I very quickly became suspicious of him. We felt he was far too cocky about how the police would probably get off. He would say things like, yeah, well, you know, you guys did a good job, but they'll get off. They'll get off. I'm sorry. You know, well, it's not going to be good for you. That must have been very frustrating. It was. He even went as far as to say it wouldn't be good for you. Did that feel quite threatening? It did. It did, indeed. In a sign of just how far the rot had spread, Chief Superintendent Moody, the man investigating police corruption, was himself sent to prison for a number of years when it was revealed that he'd been demanding bribes and running a racket amongst the pornographers in Soho. So the man who was set to catch the thief, thieves, was in fact himself a thief. Shows you how they were working against us. Investigations by Frank Williamson eventually led to the appointment of Robert Mark as commissioner, and he cleared the yard of hundreds of detectives suspected of corruption. A bent detective harms the whole fabric of public confidence and the confidence of the courts and the police. And so far as I'm concerned, uh, he will always be a prime target, and he can look to no mercy at all from me. The story met with a mixed reaction. The Times, the paper of record, had broken the mould and published a major expose which called into question the integrity of the police. And this, in an age of deference, when most people unquestioningly trusted them. It was a cultural shock. And it took another three years for the officers named in the investigation to finally be convicted. Robson and Harris went to jail at their trial. And we then prepared ourselves to give evidence for the next trial, which was of Detective Sergeant Simons. And Simons was at the centre of the firm in the firm. And while he wasn't a very senior detective, he was obviously supported and knew people right to the top. So his trial was going to be very important. Moody said to us during the Robson-Harris thing, while we were standing outside the court, Well, yes, you know, if these two go down, you know, you're never going to see Simons. He'll do a runner. We thought, this is strange. When the day came for call Sergeant Simons to ring through the old Bailey, there was no Sergeant Simons. The prosecutor stood up and said, I'm sorry to tell you, Your Honour, or something to this effect. Sergeant Simons is said to have gone overseas to hide. Sergeant Simons had, indeed, done a runner. A group of corrupt officers had clubbed together and paid him to leave the country. Moody and co. gave me money to go abroad. Gave me £2,000 to go. And I was promised more, which never came. They just wanted me out of the way. He actually, we understand, went to South Africa and then to Rhodesia and hid out there. And stuck it out in Rhodesia for a while and then finally came and gave himself up. And there was an eventual trial. This was several years after. And he went to jail. In a way, though, now that there is a a bit more cynicism about them or sort of, you know, people are more likely to hold them to account, do you think that's a slightly healthier attitude, given how hard it was for you to be believed when you brought out your story? 
Yes, I do. I think the setting up of A10, which was the predecessor to the departments that exist now and are shown in line of duty, that was a, a massive step forward because it's not only a guarantee for the public that these things will be looked into, it's a guarantee for the honest police within the forces. And while they may not at times be very popular, as they tread on toes of honest policemen as well as bent ones, I think it's a great step forward. And I think we have to look back to Robert Mark and some of his work and Frank Williamson and his work for that change. And I think having an open system is always better. For Julian, this investigation held so many risks. It was a risk for the paper to break with convention and run reports which exposed the seedy underbelly of one of the most respected institutions in the country. For Julian and Gary, as they were followed and threatened, it held other risks too. But looking back now, it was just one chapter in a crowded career. It's difficult. This story was important, but I've done an awful lot of stories over the years, and in a way it sort of faded into the background until recently as Mm. just another thing. And in many ways, I'd like to think of it as that. It was important, but Gary and I did an honest and working-like job on it, and we're proud of it, but there was the courage of the editor to print it, There was the success of Williamson and Mark to turn it into something that cleaned up the yard. And that has to be respected. So we respect that a lot, the pair of us. Yes, as a journalist, you do all sorts of things. You interview politicians, nice ones, bad ones, ones who give you a tough time. You do all sorts of things. But it's a long time ago in my career because I'm I'm getting on. But I I look back at this as, as just one of those chapters that have turned out okay. Now, there are so many different sources of journalism and so many of them are unreliable. But I hope that solid job goes on because unless people expose corruption where it is and expose wrongdoing properly as journalists, then then we're all under a, a threat. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, former Times journalist Julian Mounter. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Gareth Isles. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.